the Lord would set me aside so we can focus. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time. And we thank you for your leading. Uh, the little bit of worship that I caught there at the end, God, I'm so grateful for. Um, I'm so grateful for the grace that you extended to me and the love that you, that you showed me through your Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that, Lord, um, you would empower me that all my days uh, I would devote my life to knowing Him and to being His friend and to pursuing the things that He desires for me to pursue. That I might know Your book and I might speak the truths and the doctrines that, that, are, that are therein. Lord, we love You and uh, Lord, we desire You. And for those that don't know You today, I pray that uh, the message of the Gospel would be made clearer to them. Uh, that they would understand the nature of sin, that they would understand the lack that we have, um, absent the Creator uh, and His love. And so we need you. We need you in this time. Lord, we ask that you would, uh, that you would speak through me, and we ask this in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. Okay. So in Acts chapter 3, we are coming on, off of uh, the heels of 3,000 believers getting saved in Jerusalem during uh, the Feast of Weeks. And, and so uh, Peter preaches this awesome message in chapter 2. And um, he calls the Jewish people to repent uh, the, of their sin for crucifying the Savior of the world. And he calls them into that repentance. And 3,000 people get saved. And at the end of chapter 2, what we get is a snapshot shot of what the early church looked like in those days where people were coming to know Christ in, in abundance. 3,000 people, that's, that's, we would consider that to be revival, right? And, and so all of these people come to know Jesus Christ. They call upon Him in repentance. They get saved, okay? And, and then they're dwelling together. And what we called that message was the, the, the foundation of fellowship. And we talked about what it meant to be in fellowship together. And we start chapter 3 in a very similar tone, okay? So let's look on at... Chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer being the ninth hour. We see Peter and John together going to the temple to pray at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, the same hour uh, as the crucifixion, um, which is interesting. So, so they've been praying in community in chapter 2. But in chapter 3, what they're doing is together, in just the two of them are going into the temple to pray in private and in fellowship. You know, Peter and John, together, these two men are very different from one another. I don't know if you have looked at their lives, but these are two men that are very distinct individuals. The Apostle Peter is uh, famous for being kind of hard-headed, right, determined, uh, lives in his passions, right, sees things in very black and white terms, very physical, rough, he's a little bit older, but sometimes he acts like he's a little bit younger, right? He's a little bit older than the other apostles, but sometimes he acts like he's about 16, right? John is much different than Peter. John is a much different individual. John is, uh, we see him as maybe a little bit more soft-spoken. He talks lots in his letters and in his gospel about love and about relationship. And he's probably a feeler. If you guys are into personality types, he's probably a feeler, Right? And he's, and he's a dreamer. And uh, these men are two different individuals, very distinct from one another. And here they are, arm in arm together, going in uh, to pray. True friendship, true ministry, has little to do with similarities 
our cultural predispositions. And I think that's a very important thing to know. Um, I think even in an urban setting, in a church in an urban setting, this is very important for us to recognize because most of the churches today, really no matter where you go, is a group of people who, who claim Christ, but, but they don't say this. They don't say this overtly, but they're looking for people who are culturally similar to them to worship with. I remember when I was young, I went to a Bible-believing church, right? Um, I, won't say, I won't say the name of it. It's now defunct, so it doesn't really matter, but... That's what happens to churches like this, by the way. Uh, I, I only heard this when I was a little bit older, but the pastor uh, would oftentimes send the black people that would show up to our church to the black church down the street that was like-minded. Pretty crazy, huh? Yeah, your jaws drop. Um, but he thought that was the most wise thing to do, that they should be with the people that are culturally most like them, that they'll get more done that way. And he was, he was very misled in his thinking, okay? And... and I don't think that that's all too different than what we see happening even in an urban setting like this. We have churches on block to block that are made up, uh, a lot of them, of young, educated, white people who like to worship together. They sing the same songs. They dress the same way. And they like to be together. Now here's the problem is that's not what God's church looks like. That's not what God's church looks like. God's church looks like people of all different races, all different ages, all different sizes and shapes, all different cultural predispositions, all different desires, different types of worship that they like here or there, coming together in commonality to worship the Father, to pursue the things that He wants us to pursue, and to be in fellowship with one another. And we do not, we do not have the right okay, to allow anything to get in the way of that. We don't have the right to do that. And I think it's very important and very healthy for the church to make an, a concerted effort to look like the people that they minister to. Our church sits at 40th and Walnut. It sit, sits between pretentious, educated, urban, white business people and common people that have lived in this neighborhood for 20 or 30 years, brown and black and white, and so I pray to God that our church would continue to look like the people that we're, we're called to minister to at 40th and Walnut. And as we do so, we as a ministry are going to have to choose to prefer others over ourselves and to not allow cultural differences to get in the way of that. Allow personality differences to get in the way of that. Here we have Peter and John going in to worship together. Two men, very different, very distinct in fellowship. Now listen to me, this is important. True fellowship has everything to do with, with people prioritizing God's will. Here's our first key point. Friendships rooted in prayer are among the most powerful and intimate friendships that one can have. Friendships that revolve around and make time and give energy to prayer are going to be some of the most powerful relationships that a person can build. I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but prayer is really interesting, okay? When you come before God, you have a tendency to share things that you wouldn't share with, with the average individual, right? And we've talked about this before, but prayer is about being vulnerable with the Lord and seeking His will for our lives. Now, if you do that in fellowship, what could that do in terms of the binding together of followers of Christ? Prayer binds us together. 
the pursuit of the Lord together, that endeavor in prayer. This is why we always talk about we're going to be a church and we're going to be a house of prayer. And when we come together and we gather, we're going to pray as often as we possibly can. We're going to pray when we start things. We're going to pray when we end things. We're going to pray in between. I mean, I don't know if anybody had this experience, but on the way down to retreat or coming back, you have five hours together, and a lot of times things come up in conversation, and maybe you stop just right there and say, hey, can we pray about that? Can we pray about that? That's obviously on your heart, and that's, her, that's something that is, that is on your mind and, and on your heart. Let's take a moment to lift that before the Lord. See, that's the kind of culture that we need to have as a body. And if we choose to pray that way, then God will continue to knit us together in a way that no man and no flesh and no spiritual entity can, can divide. Prayer will bind us together and give us true fellowship. So together we see Peter and John, they're going into the temple and they're getting ready to pray. And let's look on. Let's, let's look on and we're going to be introduced to a man here who is imprisoned and spellbound by his deficiency. Okay? And they refer to this man as a certain man, and that's how we're going to refer to him as well. Verse 2. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. So what do we have here? We have a man who is sitting in this gate. It's a divide uh, between the temple and, um, and the others. There's multiple gates here. I'm not going to explain the geography that surrounds the temple. Um, Herod built, uh, funded. Uh, the temple was very beautiful at this time. And, um, and it was well structured. And, and there's this gate that he's sitting in. It's called the, gate, the gate's called Beautiful. And he's sitting there. And he's asking for alms. He's asking for a handout, right? Uh, and we see people doing this all over our city every day, on every corner. We see people like this, okay? And, and so he's sitting there. His friends have brought him there. And they refer to him as a certain man. The story, ref- there's no name here. We're not given a name. We're given uh, this title, a certain man. You know, his name is of little significance to us. The, it's, it's of little significance to the reader He's a certain man. A certain man is a title given to someone characterized by his common sameness. The thing that he shares with everyone. He's just a certain man. No different than you or I. A certain man. A certain woman. Each of us are born with the same common condition as everyone else. From our mother's womb. From our mother's womb. We are just as the certain man. Destined to eternity of separation from God. Born into a life of depravity and wickedness, a tendency to be sinful, wanderers, distant, were born into that life. Romans 5.12 teaches us that. Romans 3.23 teaches us that, that we are born separated from a holy God, just like a certain man. The certain man is, is called the lame man later on in the chapter, which characterizes him by his deficiency. A certain man pictures for us all those who are weighed in the balances and found wanting, characterized and defined by general lack and inability. That's us. Absent God, we are a certain man. 
The certain man is every one of us born into the void, disposed to be jostled about by the circumstances of our world. This man has, has, has found himself in a place where people don't respect him, don't acknowledge him, and he sits and he's looking for a handout. The certain man is every person who is looking to eke out a living. People who are relying on survival techniques that they've learned from others who do beggarly work. This man is obviously watched. There are other people that are begging. There's other people of deficiency that are sitting around with their hand out, and it's their way of surviving. And the truth is, if we are honest with ourselves, we, are, we were, absent God, that person. And some of us are still living that way right now. We're using survival techniques. We are just getting by. And we're looking for happiness and we're looking for survival. And that is not good enough for God. That is not good enough for God. The certain man is trying to bear his own weight, scrape out a bit of life, a bit of happiness in a world who's, who offers him no answers to his sin. The certain man surrounds himself with certain men. It says, whom they lay daily at the gate of the temple. Isn't it true that certain men, that, that lost people, they surround themselves with other people who only seek and serve to prop up their deficiency? These men, his friends, they, they, they had no answers for him. But just simply encourage him to, brother, we're going to set you down right here. Do your best today. Good luck. Good luck. We wish you the best. We'll come back and we'll collect you later this evening. And that is the way that lost people treat one another. They support each other in their sin. They offer each other no answers, but they continually invite one another and help one another to live and exist in a world that offers them no solutions to their depravity. This is no way to live. The certain man grows numb, grows numb by routine of his own reality. When laid outside the temple, he cannot go in because over time he has learned that religion holds no answers. They don't lay him in the temple. They don't take him in the temple because the temple holds nothing for him. There's no answers there. He sits helpless in the gate called beautiful, unknowing of his proximity to healing. He's captured by the spell of his physical reality. He's stuck. He's stuck. In this moment, the certain man has no idea that the answer to his problem is standing right in front of him. And he continues under the spell of his reality, hand extended, hoping for a bit of comfort and a bit of human kindness. This is the way that the lost world lives. And some of you, some of you remember that. Others of you are living that. That is your reality. You're going to college. You're going to work. You're, you're coexisting with other people who are just trying to get by, trying to find a little bit of happiness, trying to define their own happiness. Trying to invent their own way. Trying to get by in a world that they know is out to get them. And their college degree is not going to offer them any happiness any more than they have now. Sexual relationships, 
friendships built on materialistic foundations, these things offer them nothing but a bit of happiness from day to day. And they're stuck. They're spellbound. They're trapped. They're caught in the same cycle, in the same routines every single day. And what does he do? He asks Peter and John, unknowing. He asks them for a little bit of help. Verse 3. Who seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. So this is the life of a certain man. That is until God's men enter the picture. That is until God's men enter the picture. And how are God's men defined? God's men and women are characterized by their purpose to pray and worship. Aren't they? Isn't that what Peter and John were going to do? They were purposed to go pray and worship. And that defines them. That's their character. That's who they are. They're men of prayer. They're men of worship. And it makes them particularly ready to enter in when they're needed. They're characterized by the filling of the Holy Spirit, empowered by God. They're defined by living an intentional, gospel-centered life. And what we're about to see is that these two men choose intentionally, to break the monotony of this lost man's situation. They choose to do it. They choose to disrupt the routine of the certain man and call this certain man to see beyond his lack. Key point number two. The spellbound depravity of the lost world is broken by the intent and the unction of godly men and women. The spellbound depravity of the lost world is broken by the intentionality of godly men and women who choose to speak in the unction, which means the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, we literally, when, when filled with God's intent, when filled with God's Spirit, and purposed in our hearts to do His will, when we are presented with opportunities to speak the truth, we ought to do so. We ought to do so. And in so doing, we have the capacity to break the spell and to break the bondage that Satan has worked years and decades establishing. We have the capacity and we have the authority to break chains. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Peter begins by fastening his eyes. This word fastening means to fix your eyes, to set your eyes, focus your attention, focus your mind. You know, in the midst of the day-to-day crowd of Jerusalem, it comes as no surprise that someone who routinely begs on the street would be ignored. That he would become a common fixture in a landscape of people. Jerusalem was a hustling, bustling metropolis full of lots of religious people doing lots of different things, going about, minding their own business, just like all of us do every day. 
You know, it's not hard to ignore people like this, is it? It's not hard to ignore certain men and certain women. You know, we're prone to it because our flesh tells us that answering the needs around us will cost us something. And we're afraid of that. So it's easier, it's easier to let our family members, our co-workers, our classmates just blend into the scenery. Permanent fixtures in a temporal world. You know you have people like that in your life. You know that the people that you were once intentional about reaching, they become like wallpaper. Family members that you were once so desirous that they might know Jesus Christ, you've relented. You've relented in your prayer life, you've relented in your witness. And you've chosen, rather, to ignore them. People in your classes. People that you know might reject you. And so we choose fear. But that wasn't good enough for Peter. Peter fastens his eyes. He chose to be present. He chose to consider the souls of the lost. He chose not to ignore. He chose not to ignore. Peter knew that to see the need was the beginning of reaping fruit. Did you hear what I said? Seeing need is the beginning of the fruit that God wants us to reap in ministry. We have to have eyes to see. John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me. And to finish his work. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you what? He says what? Lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. How can we possibly be intentional and engaging with, with the lost world around us if we don't first see them and choose to see them? We must see the harvest. Yeah, I do that. You got to control me over there. What did I just do? I just made it work. I fixed it. So many of us don't see the harvest. So, so many of us, you know, here's the interesting thing. So many of us see the harvest, but we don't see the stock of wheat. We don't see the value in the one. Key point number three. Our failure to see the lost individual within the crowd is a failure to have Christ's heart. You know, the one, the one who went after the one, you know, the good shepherd whose heart is for just one lamb. You know, none of us would ever ignore a lost child in a crowd at a carnival, you know. 
I was at uh, the Summit Art Festival yesterday, downtown Lee Summit, with my son. And we were manning the tent, and Shepard likes to wander around. And, uh, and I kept thinking to myself, man, I've got to keep my eye on him. You know, people are talking and all these things. And I got a text later on from one of the, the, my coworkers saying that earlier in the day she had been down there, and there was a little girl that had lost her grandma, and she had to help her find her grandma. You know, that's scary as a little kid. You know, there's not one of us that wouldn't, if they saw a little child lost, wouldn't step in to help them find their grandma. None of us would do that. But yet, daily we live among hurting people, and we fail to come alongside them. People who have lost their way, people who have failed to find the Father, and we shrug it off when we should be pressing in. And you know you do this. You know you do this. It's the fellowship and the sharpening and the prayer of Peter and John together that makes them hyper aware of the will of God. Intentionality is born of setting your affections on God in one accord. Let's read about that. Verse 4, And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, what? Look on us. Peter wants the man's eye contact. But what would this man find? Two gruff fishermen from Galilee. Two men who, upon appearance, have nothing to offer him. But yet they demand, they say, look on us. No, it's what Peter wants is he wants his attention. That he might speak earnestly and intentionally, not passively. Peter calls the man to engage him. So many of us have passive conversations about faith. And we liken them to witnessing. We have passive conversations about the Bible. We have passive conversations about our church. We have passive conversations about what we believe. And very few of us, very few of us are actually engaging anyone for the gospel. And we frame it as though we witness today. Are we? Are we? You know, there's nothing wrong with passive conversations. But what people need is intentional, personal, and pointed conversations about the terms of the gospel if they are to ever find healing. Some may plant seeds, some may water. That's fine, that's fine, I get that. I'm, I'm all for that. But what we must be seeking is intentional conversations that lead to a gospel presentation that decisions might be made. If some of us weren't bold over the last couple weeks, there would have been people that we should, like, man, I, I praise God for some of you. I praise God for some of you because there's some of you who've had conversations, opportunities to lead people to the Lord over the last couple of weeks that if you wouldn't have spoken up, if you wouldn't have said something, that opportunity would have fallen to the wayside and that person would have never accepted Christ. I know of, I know of at least four salvations over the last two weeks. But if we're honest, there are many of us who regular, regularly 
pass people by. And we struggle to engage them. And we struggle to speak the thing that the Holy Spirit is calling us to speak. We feel it in our hearts. We know it in our minds. And yet we do nothing. And we pat ourselves on the back when we had a little conversation about how we're going to church tomorrow morning. It's not good enough that we just speak truth. But we have to be looking for eyes that are willing to see. And we have to be calling out to ears that will hear. And we have to be speaking into hearts that are willing to perceive truth. These are the people that we're looking to engage. And much of ministry is spent, and I want to say well spent, on calling people to engage. Some will, some won't. Some will, some won't. But we have to call them to engage. We need to call them to follow as we follow. It's, ne- it's a necessary part of our ministry as a man or a woman of God to call people to look on us that they might see Christ. Now notice that they have nothing to offer. Verse 5. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. He was looking for a handout. He's, his hand is ready to receive. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. You know, Peter turns out his pockets, making it clear that he had nothing physical to offer, no money. You know, certainly if he had money, he would have probably been willing to give it, but he had none. You know, what good would have been the money if he had it? You know, that's a fair question, isn't it? What good would, have the, money, would the money have been to this man? Say Peter would have just given him some money and walked away. What good would it have been? So much of church and so much of ministry today is comprised of people who want to do good things to help people physically. And so much of it is void of people who are willing to actually give the gospel. I learned the most about this from actually teaching high school because there's so many wonderful young believers whose churches invite them on missions trips all over the world. Latin America, you know, usually Latin America. It's usually Latin America. It's nicer down there. There are beaches. And so they go on mission trips and they go and they build a playground They paint a facility of some sort. They do vacation Bible school with the children, perhaps. That is if if they're real intentional. But very few of them come back to me to tell me about how they shared the gospel. This is Christianity today. There's many of us who would rather give alms than preach the truth. John chapter 4, the woman at the well, you know, she's going down to the water to retrieve water that she might quench her temporal thirst. And Jesus makes it clear that there's, her, her temporal thirst is nothing compared to her spiritual thirst. And then he has a water that will make it so that she'll never quench again. Later on, his disciples, they come and they they meet him and they offer him lunch and they say, Master, eat. 
And he refuses their food in anticipation of the spiritual lunch that he's about to receive. He says to them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Likewise, we have little to offer people by the way of physical things. I know that's super true of college students. Y'all are poor and you got nothing. You've got nothing. But I don't want to hear about you eating ramen noodles. Don't play up the ramen noodle thing, okay? That's the last thing I want to hear. All right? You've got, I see you down at the coffee shop. You're eating your ramen noodles, then you're buying a $5 latte. <laughs> don't tell me about the ramen noodles, liar. And by the way, if you're boiling your water to make your ramen noodles, that's bourgeois noodles, okay? If you're boiling water and you're doing all that work, that's real uppity for a college student, don't you think? When I was a college student, you used a microwave to heat up your water. Fancy ramen noodles. Guys, we have nothing to offer the lost world by way of physical things. The only thing that we have to offer the lost world is Jesus Christ. It is the only answer. It is the only answer for their depravity. It is is the only answer for for breaking the spell that the lost world is under. You know it's like a spell. You know that, don't you? But he says, but such as I have, give I thee. Point number four. We have nothing to offer the lost, but Christ and an extended hand. That's the only thing we have to offer the lost. Christ and an extended hand. Peter says to him, silver and gold have I none, but such as I, I have, I, I, give, I give I thee. And then he says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Rise up and walk. You know, all he had was the measly, minute, meek, lowly authority of the Savior of the world. He spoke in the name. That name, that that name of great power, that divisive name. The phrase in the name comes up ten times in Acts. You should study that out. You know, many of us live Christian lives that look like going to and fro to the temple to pray, but very few of us live lives as ambassadors on the streets, wielding the authority of Jesus' name. Very few of us take advantage of that right. So you want to be Christians, going to pray in the temple, but you don't want to be ambassadors in the streets, in the, in the classrooms, at your job. Shame on us. If you fail to speak his name, then you may escape the fear of rejection for a while, but you choose, you choose weakness. And there is no authority without his name. 
There's no authority without His name. So you may, you may reject the work of an ambassador. You can do that. That's your right. But you will also be relenting the power and the authority that comes with being an ambassador. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 says, Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Are you faithful? Are you a faithful ambassador? 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 says, As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God, as the prophets of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. See, when we go, we don't go of our own volition. When we go, we go in the authority of God and in the power of His name. There's no fear in that. When the name Jesus of Nazareth is used, crowds will be divided, certainly. People will reject you, but hearts will also be stirred. The beggar, you know, the beggar had certainly heard the name of Jesus. Being in proximity to the temple the way that he was, he knew the name of Jesus. He knew the stories. He knew of the disciples. He would have known of Jesus' enemies. And he would have known of the miracles. And the apostles, these men right here, when they spoke the name Jesus of Nazareth, they would have been extending to him power and authority that he had not yet received. And so a rise and walk was the proposition, wasn't it? It was the faith proposition. And the extended hand was the invitation to love and kindness. Verse 7, And he took them by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankles, ankle bones received strength. And he leaping up stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. Key point number six. There is nothing more worthy of rejoicing and nothing more powerful than witnessing God breaking sin's spell. There is nothing more worthy of rejoicing And nothing more powerful than witnessing God breaking the spell of people's sin. There's nothing like it. Has anybody ever witnessed that before? Yeah? You've experienced it. You've witnessed it. You've seen the change in the life of a person who chooses to rise up and walk. You've seen it. You've witnessed it. And there's nothing, there's nothing quite like that, is there? There's nothing quite like someone who is in bondage to, to sin being set free. I want to use a... Where's, is Carly in here? Maybe she's not in here. Uh, she's in Kidtown. This will make it perfect. So she won't be embarrassed. In high school, I knew uh, Carly. Uh, she was in my class a couple times. And uh, senior year, she and some friends had come and they visited here. And they heard me, me preach. And it freaked them out a little bit. Sean, am I freaking you out? 
No? Okay, good. And they were freaked out by it a little bit. And they went back, and it, and it provoked further conversation. And I, and I shared the gospel. She was a part of a church at the time who hadn't given her the gospel, the full gospel, right? And she had not yet received Jesus Christ. And we had several conversations that were very hard. And uh, she loved me, and I loved her, and uh, she had not yet received Christ. But when she graduated, she had a little bit of need in her life. She needed friends, and so she started coming to Bible study. I don't know how I convinced her of that. I think Jacqueline had a lot to do with that. But uh, she started going to Bible study, and then she accepted Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you something. She is a completely, completely different person. Lindsay Hudson. Hated my freaking guts. <laughs> and she's a, today, she's a completely, I don't even know that Lindsay. I don't know that person. She's been set free. This is what the gospel does. This is what the gospel does. And people begin to take notice. Verse 9. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. And as the lame man which was healed held, held Peter and John, they're embracing one another, wouldn't you? All the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's. Greatly wondering. See, when the miracle happened, and when miracles do happen, they tend to draw a crowd. And the multitudes, they came to see what had become of the lame man, of the certain man. And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us? So funny that he talks about them looking at him. Or why look ye so earnestly on us as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? Immediately he deflects the attention and he turns it to Jesus Christ. The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate, when he was determined to let him go. You remember that story? Give us Barabbas. Remember when you said, give us Barabbas? But ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you and killed the Prince of Life. Whom God hath raised from the dead whereof we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know, yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And so he turns the guilt to them by saying in verse 17, And now, brethren, I wot that through ignorance ye did it, as did also your rulers. In other words, I get it. 
you killed Christ out of ignorance. But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets, they stand in witness against you. That Christ should suffer. And he hath so fulfilled. You know, ignorance is no excuse for sin. It's no excuse in Romans chapter 1. And it's no excuse in your friends' lives and the people that you know. Their, their lack of knowledge is to their own condemnation. That's why it's our responsibility to give them truth. But it's no excuse. Ignorance is no excuse. The consequence is the same. Hell and damnation for all those who refuse God. Their failure and their ruler's failure to recognize the truth does not mitigate the responsibility of their sin. But now that they see this miracle and they see the reality of their sin, it's time to repent. Verse 19, Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. When the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord and He shall send Jesus Christ, who's coming again, right? That's what He's saying. Which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of, uh, the times of restitution of all things which God hath spoken by the mouth of His holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. You know, what Peter says here is super important for you to understand, especially you young believers who are new to the Bible. The entirety of Scripture talks about Jesus Christ. From beginning to end, every prophet, every book, every moment, every verse, every section of Scripture is dedicated to the coming of the Messiah and the kingdom that he will establish. Every bit of it, every single bit of it. And it doesn't just condemn these Jews, it condemns every one of us. It tells us of our need of a Messiah to set us free. That's what it does. Verse 25, Ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you first God, having raised up his son Jesus Christ, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. Five thousand people get saved. When Peter preaches this message, 5,000 people repent and turn to Jesus Christ. Now let me suggest to you for a moment something very important. If they wouldn't have stopped for the one, if they wouldn't have been intentional about preaching the gospel to the one, they would have failed to reap this harvest. The worship team, can you come up? By the obedience of two men and the faith of one man, a multitude are saved. The testimony of one individual's faith has the capacity to resonate loudly. You hear me? To sound out the name and the authority of Christ Jesus. One life changed. One person made whole. 
Some of you are hearing the testimony of this certain man and you're saying to yourself, like him, I now see my circumstances for what they are. I'm lost. I am a certain man. I don't know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. If I was to die today, I don't know where I would go. My life, I'm caught in a spell. I'm caught in a worldly cycle. Things repeat themselves. I'm stuck looking for happiness. I could find no joy. Peace comes and goes. If that's you, during our invitation, our time of prayer, you come forward and you meet with a counselor that's going to be standing over here in the wings. You come and talk to them. And you see what the Bible has to say about, about what it means to be a certain man who, who becomes a godly man or woman. Come learn, find out what it means to follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Now listen to you, for the rest of you, for those of you who do know Jesus and you have been forgiven, we need to be reminded that our job is to be ambassadors of Christ. And it will require intentionality on our part. And we must refuse to ignore the people that are around us. Who have you been ignoring? Who have you failed to see? Who have you failed to share the name of Christ with? And who have you failed to extend your hand to? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this time. And I'm grateful for the truth of your word. And Lord, I pray that it would cut us, that it would call us, that it would draw us, that Lord, that we would learn that we are responsible to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to propagate it. Lord, if we want beautiful feet in a beautiful gate, then it means we must be delivering the gospel of peace. Lord, we don't take that word beautiful lightly. If we want beautiful feet, if we want to be seen by you as being faithful ambassadors, if we want to be beautiful before you, then it will require from us to take the gospel to every person and that we would have your heart and your eyes to see those who are in need that tend to blend in. The ones that we don't see, give us eyes to see those people and give us the strength and the boldness to say that, that, that if you look upon me, you might see Christ. That if you look my direction and you lock eyes with me and we engage one another, there is a chance that you will know the gospel. And to call people to do that, that's our, our chief responsibility in this world. And Lord, I ask that you would help us and teach us how to do that. Lord, for those that don't know you, Lord, and they need forgiveness, would you speak to them now and would you give them the unction to stand up and to go and to meet with someone and to talk. I ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.